Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chris's Courses, where we're going through our current series, Questions in Genesis, looking at the first foundational book of the Bible to ask, what does it say about who we are as God's people, and even, who is God? Trying to focus on the questions this book asks of us, and not just our own questions that we might bring to it. So we're going to be picking up today in chapter 20, although we won't actually look much at that chapter. We're still in the middle of the Abraham story. We're actually kind of coming to the end of it. Uh, It's been going on for a long time. It started all the way back in chapter 12, where God called this person Abraham and told him he was going to make him a great nation, that he would bless everyone else, right? This is kind of the way that God is going to focus on this particular group in order to bless all of the world. And we've seen over and over through this story the ways that Abraham's faith just is very up and down, that he'll believe God, he'll go where he's meant to go, uh, and then he will have a lack of faith and, and act out of fear or try and take matters into his own hands to make this promise come true. Um, and so now, but the, the other drama through all this story is that, well, God came to him and said, you're going to have you know this massive family, but he's old and doesn't have a child yet. And so... Over and over, we've been wondering, when is this child going to come? And so God keeps coming back and, and repeating this promise to him to tell him, you, you are going to have a son, but we're still waiting, but we're almost to the end. We're almost about to get that child that's been promised. So we're going to pick up in chapter 20, like I said, and the reason we don't need to really look at it much is we basically already had this story. This is another story of Abraham going to another place and uh, telling the, the ruler there that his wife, Sarah, is actually his sister because he's afraid of what the other person might do, right? We had that uh, back in chapter 12 when there it was Pharaoh. Here it's a king named Abimelech. And, you know, there are some things that are different this time that, that are kind of interesting. I think that, to me, the thing that stands out the most is the, the way that Abraham and Abimelech talk about fear or how that's brought up. Right? One of the reasons Abraham does this is because he says, I'm afraid of what might happen, that you know, they might want to take my wife from me and kill me. And, and Abraham thinks that, well, there's no fear of the Lord. There's no fear of God in this place. That's why I have to, to do these sort of things to protect myself. But what you see in the story is that Abimelech, this foreign god, uh, sorry, this foreign king, does fear God. And so um, God talks to Abimelech. Abimelech maintains his innocence through it, and even though it it made things difficult, um, we see that it's not just about Abraham and Israel, that that God cares about outsiders as well, that outsiders can actually have faith, and in fact, sometimes they have greater faith. I think that's an important lesson for us is maybe we consider ourselves insiders as part of God's people to recognize that actually sometimes we're the ones that get it wrong, and the people on the outside, maybe they can see God a little clearer than we do. Um, so that's that's pretty much all that goes on here. Again, similar story to before. Abimelech also shows up at the end of chapter 21 in a story that, that we'll skip just because it's them having a disagreement, Abraham and Abimelech, and then making a covenant over it. So let's get to chapter 21, where we get the moment we've been waiting for, the birth of Isaac. It says, The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son, whom Sarah bore him. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. 
And she said, Who would ever have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And I have borne him a son in his old age. All right, this is what we've been waiting for since Abraham's call. <laughs> you kind of expect the word finally to be in here somewhere, but here it is, however, however long it took. And you notice a few things that seem to be emphasized about God and about Abraham and Sarah through this. Uh, about God, it's emphasizing that God has kept the promise. Right? In verse 1, it basically says it twice and kind of redundant, right? As he had said, as he had promised. And so, you know, we still might wonder, and we know that Abraham and Sarah did through this of, okay, well, why did it take so long? Well, we, we don't get an answer to that, but the point is that the promise has come true. And even as, as Abraham and Sarah are old, right? That's, that's mentioned several times as well, that he's, he's well beyond the age when you normally have children. But through the work of God, now they do. And also Abraham is, is noted as someone who follows the commands, right? He, just as he circumcised his whole family before, he circumcises Isaac on the eighth day. So, you know, the, the overall picture here is that God brings new life when it seems like there's no hope. You know, anybody else would have looked at them and said, you know, yeah, I guess their line is ending with them, but God can bring new life out of it. And so again, we have laughter. That's the way that Sarah responds. That's the meaning of Isaac's name. We, we heard that mentioned in previous stories where both Abraham and Sarah kind of laughed at God when they said, no, you're still going to have a child. Right? They, they kind of laughed at the, the ridiculousness of the promise, but now she laughs with joy. And she wants to invite other people into that joy. You know, you think about how you respond when you finally experience something or receive something that you've waited for for a long time. There might be a little bit of, of relief, right? You were starting to wonder, man, I don't know if this was ever going to happen. And then when you finally, it, it finally gets to that point, it's just uh, all those worries and anxieties that have been building, you can let them go because it's come true. And there's this desire to celebrate, right? You see Sarah wanting to, to tell others and bring other people into it. Others are going to laugh with me. It's not just about us, but when you have this kind of joy, it's, it's infectious. You want to spread it to, to everyone around you. <laughs> it's the only good kind of infection, I guess. And so that's what they experience here. So this is the moment of joy, but immediately we get a, a, a moment of, of tension and a moment of conflict. So picking up in verse 8. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman and her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. So immediately there's drama to deal with, because story-wise, Ishmael is a problem, right? Because technically, he is Abraham's firstborn son. Now, Isaac is the child of the promise. We saw earlier in this whole, if you don't remember the situation from the previous chapters, the way that Sarah, it was her idea, was going to make this promise come true. Is like, Well, just you know, sleep with my slave and we'll get a child that way. Right? It was her idea. 
And yet um, God came in and says, no, Sarah, you're part of this too. We're not going to go around. The promise is going to come through both of you, which is, which is positive, and yet uh, it's, in a sense, creates a problem, although we're talking about a person here, right? So the question is, what happens to the outsider? What happens to the other son and the other mother? You think about Sarah and her reaction, and I think most of us, we may understand a little, but we're not going to have much sympathy for her. She's definitely in the wrong here. Again, it's this idea that, well, it was your idea, Sarah, so you, should you really be this mad about it? You know, you actions have consequences. Uh, that's true in anything we do, but especially, I mean, the consequences is a human being, and we have to treat Ishmael as a human being, despite them really not wanting to. Now, her... Uh, the reason she's upset here is is something that's going on between Isaac and Ishmael. They'll have different translations that'll say, you know, mine said he was playing with him. Others might say that he was teasing him or mocking him. Whatever it was exactly that Ishmael was doing, I, I think we can still agree this is a bit of an overreaction. Also, is kind of a side note, but it, it's really unclear how old Ishmael is supposed to be at this point, right? Isaac, he's just been weaned, so he's probably two or three. Uh, and it seems like Lot, many years have gone by since you know the whole thing happened with Hagar and Ishmael. But when you read the story, it seems like he's still pretty young too. So that again, it's unclear. But you know, uh, if you have more than one kid, or if you had siblings, you know what goes on between two brothers. And you know, playing or teasing is just kind of part of it. It's not an excuse to to kick them out. But you know, you imagine for Sarah, she's just feeling her own insecurity and her own. Uh, frustration about this, so she just wants them gone. The, Hagar and Ishmael are, are innocent victims, and yet Sarah just wants to treat them as a problem. But what we see is that God cares for the outsider that, that the story wants to forget. You know, God essentially says, let them go, and I'll care for them. You know, He remind, reminds them that Isaac is the son of the promise, but as we see here, and we're going to see again, that doesn't mean that God just completely forgets or doesn't care about anyone else. I think it's important for us to, to think about what happens when we treat people as problems. You know, this is it's a common thing throughout human history that we just decide certain groups or certain types of people are just a problem to be dealt with, and we end up dehumanizing them, right? We treat them as objects, and then that justifies our anger or our hatred or our exclusion. When as we saw from the very beginning, all people are made in the image of God. And, and so they can't just be problems. The solution is never just, well, let's just wipe all of them out. Right? We've seen Genesis already wrestle with that as not the ideal solution. And so as we continue in the story, we see the way that God does still care for these outsiders. So pick it up in verse 15. When the skin of water was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. So then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. She said, do not let me look on the death of the child. And she said opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of, the God, the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. 
So Abraham, you know, he seemed a little bit troubled about his his son here in the previous story, but now it seems like he didn't actually provide them much, right? He just gave them one little skin of water, sent them out to the wilderness, and, you know, it doesn't last very long. And again, you could wonder, why is this story even here? If the story is just about Abraham, why not end this at, at uh, verse 14, right? Ishmael was a problem, and, and now he's gone, but why do we care what happens to him? Well, the story is surprisingly sympathetic to the outsider, and God is too. You know, so it seems like all hope is lost. Again, it's unclear. He's almost presented like he's a baby too because she just puts him under a bush and then walks away and because she can't watch her son die. But God comes, and God even shows them, hey, there is hope here, right? Open your eyes and see that there's water in front of you. Sometimes in the midst of grief and suffering and the, the pain that others inflict on us, we can't see what God is doing right there. But here we see God pointing that out to Hagar. And I think part of what we're, we're seeing in this is Ishmael, as the firstborn, he has rights and he has natural strength. It mentions that later on as he grows up and he's strong with the bow. We heard this back in chapter 16 when God describes him as this wild donkey of a man that he's going to be a fighter. Uh, this is this is doing something countercultural here, where you know everyone assumed that the firstborn son, you know, like me, that we are going to get all of the power and all the privilege and all the blessing, and you know everyone else is kind of second class. But what we see throughout Genesis is that God is not limited to human notions of who is first, who is primary. It's very countercultural the way that God over and over will bless the younger, weaker sons. Right? It's very much the same dynamic with Jacob and Esau of, you know, the older one has this natural strength. God is going to bless the one uh, with, that doesn't have strength with God's own strength. And so I, Ishmael still receives an important blessing, even though Abraham and Sarah tried to you know, take matters into their own hands and do things that isn't what God wanted them to do, God is still going to use that to provide more blessing. God can bring good even out of our, our bad choices. And so traditionally, you know, I don't know if there's any genetic testing that would back this up, but traditionally Ishmael is considered the father of the Arabic people. And, and so we should see that that means they're still related to the, the promise here. They're still blessed by the connection to Abraham. So I think it's important for us to, to ask, are we looking for similarities or are we looking for differences when it comes to other people, other groups of people? It's so easy to see the things that divide us, that, that we disagree on, but to see actually we have a lot more in common than we think. Right? In this case, they're actually still part of our family somehow. And again, you go to the beginning of Genesis, it's trying to show that, that we all share a common humanity. And we all share, again, the image of God, and that is what uh, should unite us. That's what should help us to see the humanity in one another, to not dehumanize one another, and not to see one another as problems, but to see everyone as those who God cares about. God's eye is on the outsider. Hagar and Ishmael are not ignored. In fact, she seems to be one of the people with the most faith in this book and the person that God responds to most, most clearly and most lovingly. So where do we think God is going to look? Can we see God in the least of these, as Christ tells us? Or we think that we have a claim to God and God only belongs to us. Genesis itself pushes against that idea. So now we want to turn to chapter 22, one of the probably the most difficult stories in Genesis, if not the whole Bible, 
and the, the binding of Isaac, uh, God's command to, to sacrifice Isaac. Now, before we read this, I just want to think, uh, give you a little thought experiment. What would you do if God told you to kill and burn your child to death? Uh, or if you don't have children, uh, your closest loved one? I think our first response would probably be, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Or we would say, that's not God, right? Because that's not, I don't see that as what God would want. I can't imagine God asking that of me. And so if that is your response, why would you say that? How do you know? Uh, or, you know, put it in another way, if, if you read in the news that there was somebody, a father who killed his son because God told him to, would you read that news story and think, oh, I can't believe God asked that of him. That's, that's such a hard thing, but I'm, I'm so glad that man had so much faith to do that. No, I think pretty much everybody would respond by saying, wow, that guy really has some mental health issues. This is a tragedy. Because, again, there's a part of us deep down that knows that is not what God would do. That is not who God is. And we're not saying that just because that's what we would prefer. We're saying that because that's who God is revealed to be in Christ. Right? We can't imagine Jesus asking that of anyone. I don't recall Jesus sacrificing any children and said welcoming them. And so that shows us what God is like. So we have to have that Christ-like foundation and we're not wrong to see that as, as what's most important and to see that as who God truly is. And so when we have that foundation, that's going to shape the way that we read a story like this. Because again, it is a difficult story. This is God commanding child sacrifice, even if God doesn't expect him to go through with it. If that doesn't trouble you somehow, then, then I think you need to wrestle with this story a little bit more. So let's uh, pick up. I'm just going to read the whole story, uh, 22, 1 to 19. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We'll worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out with his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this 
and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you, and I will make your offering offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. So there are a lot of questions that come up in this story, at least to me. And you know, we may not get perfect answers to them. I don't think this is a story with an, an easy moral or an easy solution. Uh, but we need to wrestle with some of these questions. And the first one I think about is, does Abraham need to prove his faith at this point? I mean, yes, there have been plenty of ways that he's, he's failed. Right? His track record is very up and down. He moves when God tells him to go. He lies about Sarah. He puts trust in God even when the promise doesn't seem to be coming. But then he goes and gets an alternate son. But then he follows God's command for circumcision. You know, it's, it's up and down. But shouldn't the birth of Isaac be the end of that? He's, he's get, shown his faith. And God has rewarded him by, by giving the son, and now the promise is being fulfilled. And you, you skip to the end of the story, and, and these promises that are given here, we've already received those. It, it didn't seem like that was up for debate, uh, as if God was saying, you know, well, if you hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have given you, given you any of those things. Right? That doesn't seem to track with the way the story's gone. And even God's statement of, well, now I know that you have faith again, this is one of those many places where it seems to be more of an, an ancient view of God, of God having to work with people to figure things out. God doesn't know what's going on a lot of times, and, and it's more of a process. Uh, I think we're right to maybe think of God's knowledge as being a little bit deeper than that. Uh, and so, you know, as you go through this, you see it is emphasized how, how big of a deal this is that God is asking this of him. Right? God himself emphasizes in the very beginning, saying, this is your only son, your unique son, your, your son whom you love. And so it is a big, a big ask. So I'm sure Abraham is wondering, what, what is going on here? And you know, they have this three-day journey as they're going out to the mountain. You kind of wonder what everybody is thinking. What does Isaac think is happening? You know, it's, it's kind of unclear. And this is one of those places where like, there must be more to the story, but we have what we have. And so we don't know all of Abraham's thoughts. We don't now, all of Isaac's thoughts, although those, those are going to come up in, in just a second. Now, a, the key statement, I think, in this whole story is in verse 8, where Abraham says, God will provide. And one of the ways we know that is actually highlighted by the structure of the story, because three things happen three times. Three times you get a call to Abraham, three times you get a response from Abraham, and then you get a response to Abraham three times. So God, and then Isaac, and then the angel, they call to Abraham in verse 1, 7, and 11. Abraham responds three times with the phrase, here I am, in those same verses. Uh, here I am is actually a common Hebrew response uh, from a person of faith. Uh, it seems a little silly when, when that's what he says when the angel you know, tells him to stop. Uh, but you see that consistently. The prophets often will, will say, here I am, when God calls them to be a prophet. And then after that response from Abraham, usually there's a response to him immediately uh, from the angel, um, from Isaac, and then from the angel again. And so when Abraham has an additional response in verse 8, that breaks the structure. And so that shows you this is, is key to it. And so a big question with that is uh, when Isaac says, hey, uh, where's, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? How do we interpret Abraham's response of God will provide the lamb? You know, it could be that, well, <laughs> I don't want to 
scare this boy uh, and tell him that he's the sacrifice because we still got a ways to go and he's a lot younger than me. He could probably run off if he wants to. So I'll just tell him uh, another story. That could be what he's thinking. It could be that this is actually a statement of faith. And, and I think, you know, that's, that's probably the way that we should read it. Um, maybe he literally thinks that this is the case. God will have a lamb. Maybe he doesn't know. But he has faith that God will make it right somehow. You know, there is a tradition, and the book of Hebrews even points to this, of, you know, it's almost like he thought that he could receive Isaac from the dead. You know, even if I do go through and kill him, God is going to be true to the promise that he made. But he doesn't know, right? That, that is faith. We don't know how God is going to provide sometimes, but we trust that God will. And yet, it, it seems like if, if Abraham has this kind of faith, that he would have some questions. Would it have been faithful for Abraham at the beginning of the story to ask God, well, why do you want me to sacrifice my son? Right? You've, you've made this huge deal of this promise coming through him, through Isaac, not through Ishmael, not through anybody else, but through this, this child, and now you want me to kill him? You know, it, that's as we've talked about before, that is not a lack of faith to wonder what God is doing. And in fact, what we saw in, in our previous discussion uh, about the, destruct, the destruction of Sodom, uh, there Abraham very much confronts God and asks God questions, right? Will not the judge of all the earth do what's just? And yet he would do that for Sodom, but he doesn't do that here? To me, that's, that's uh, very surprising uh, in Abraham. I, I think that would have shown greater character and greater faith if we would have asked God, well, what, what is this about? Um, and so I think this says more about Abraham and his assumptions about God. You know, in the ancient world, child sacrifice was common. And Abraham has been with the Lord, Yahweh, for a while now, but you know, he doesn't know everything about him. And so it seems like for Abraham, he just, just assumes, well, I guess this God isn't any different. Yahweh also wants child sacrifice sometimes, and it, it just hadn't come up yet. And so maybe... This is my take on it, so take it for what you will, but maybe that was God's intent as he, he's trying to push back against this idea of child sacrifice. God is trying to sacrifice the concept of child sacrifice itself and get Abraham to see, this is not what I want. And, and one of my reasons for thinking that is God clearly says it in other places. So you go to the prophet Jeremiah, a time when God's people were offering their children as burnt offerings to other gods, and God is not happy about that. So in Jeremiah 32, 35, this is what God says, They built the high places of Baal and the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, though I did not command them, nor did it enter my mind that they should do this abomination causing Judah to sin. And then uh, a famous statement from Hosea that Jesus repeats twice is God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So I think Abraham should have questioned God's command here. That would have been more faithful. And yet he doesn't. He just goes along with it and assumes that this is okay when what we know from the prophets, what we know from Jesus is this is not who God is. And so you know, it also comes in here, this idea of this being a test. It says that even in the first verse. And if we're going to use that language, that idea to talk about God, we want to have some nuance there as well and think about it. I think this is a good place to think of, of God as a parent. You know, again, as Jesus tells us to do, what would you do for your kids, you who are evil? 
Uh, and if you would do this, isn't God going to do better? So is it good to test your children? Well, it, it really depends on your purpose for doing it. If you're setting them up to fail, if you know they're not going to make the right choice and this is just going to be an excuse to punish them, that's probably not the right thing to do. But if it's you know a safe conditions, you, you try to teach them something, but you want to make sure that they've actually learned it, you're not actually putting them in danger, then you know that's, that's okay, right? I mean, tests in school are, are a necessary thing to make sure that we have the knowledge we, we have. And so sometimes that might be appropriate. So we have to figure out in what sense is, is God doing that here. I think it's also important to recognize that in the biblical languages, there's no distinction, at least in the word, between test and tempt. Um, you know, we make that distinction, right? Tempt is bad, God doesn't do that, but, but testing is fine and God, God does. Well, that's a distinction that, you know, it's, you can make, but it's a little hard to do with just uh, the Greek and Hebrew. And so a passage like James 1.13, you could read it as saying, no one when tested should say, I'm being tested by God, for God cannot be tested by evil, and he himself tests no one. Now, again, most translations will say tempt for all those, and that is an accurate way to translate too. But again, we, we have to, I want to push back against certain voices that would say, yeah, sometimes God tries to get you to do the wrong thing so that when you do, he can punish you for it. That is not godly. And I think, again, we're right to call that out as, as less than what God does. God is not trying to get us to fail. God wants us to succeed. And, and so whatever test we go through, it has to go for that purpose. It is true, though, that an untested faith isn't very strong, right? If you've never had to actually put your beliefs to the test, well, do you really believe it? Um, but how much is God going to test it? And again, in Abraham's case, it seems like he's been put to the test quite a bit through his, his journey. And so again, we want to, uh, I, I think we're right to wrestle with this here. Another thing I would say about this story is that Religion that overemphasizes human sacrifice, and I say that in quotes, or, or that overemphasizes a human cost, that affects relationships in a negative way. Uh, you see this in the story at the very end in verse 19. If you read it closely, Isaac doesn't go back with Abraham. It says Abraham goes back to his two servants, and they go back home. And you could imagine maybe Isaac needed a, a little time to collect his thoughts and think about this, but... You know, that, I can't imagine that wouldn't put a strain on their relationship to, to go through this and think, Dad was about to kill me. And so sometimes the way that we talk about what God wants us to do, it ends up sacrificing people. It ends up pushing out and excluding certain people. And I think we need to acknowledge when that's the case and see and ask ourselves, is that really what God wants? Right? Jesus says the greatest command is to love God and to love your neighbor, and, and that those aren't two separate commands, but they're the same, two sides of the same coin. Or as 1 John tells us, how can you say you love God if you don't love your brother and sister or your child in this case? And so if, if the way that we're showing love for God hurts people um, in, in whatever way we need to think about, is that truly what God wants? Now, as we're wrapping up, we also want to think about uh, Christ-like elements in this story, right? As, as we look at Genesis in its own context, we do want to pull back and think from a Christian perspective. And there have been plenty of people over time who have seen, you know, Christ-like elements here. Uh, just look at the way that Isaac has talked about. Your 
your only beloved son. It's very clear language that is repeated about Jesus at his baptism in Luke 3 and other places. And so you can see some, some similarities there. Again, Jesus' death on the cross. Some see uh, some similarities here as well. I think there's, there are some ways we can use that, but again, we don't want to go and take those too far. Don't misinterpret. Um, because I think there are some who think of Christ's death too much as a literal sacrifice, that God is demanding blood and, and there can't be forgiveness unless God gets to kill somebody. I think that's a distortion of what is actually happening in the cross, because the cross is actually about God offering God's own self, right? And that's who Jesus is. Uh, that's very different from demanding sacrifice from another, which is what seems to be happening here. So the cross is God giving God's own self in love, not demanding someone else sacrifice something to God. God doesn't need to be appeased like that. Instead, God takes all of our sin and brokenness on himself. And as, again, Hosea says, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so sacrifice has, uh, that was an ancient way that people understood uh, relating to God's. And we should see the cross as the end of that as well, as God saying, that's also not the way that I deal with things. That's not what I want. So, again, this is a difficult passage. If that hasn't been clear already, I feel like I've probably just raised more questions than answers, but I'm actually not too mad about that. I hope you're not. Sometimes there are stories that we need to wrestle with them. And in fact, we're literally going to see that in about 10 chapters when, when Israel or Jacob literally wrestles with God. That's what we're meant to do sometimes as well. And that's actually where faith grows. You know, this is a place where I, I appreciate the, the Jewish mindset because they're more often, they're trained more to just argue and, and uh, have debates about these stories, not in an angry way, but to, to again, to wrestle with them and try and figure out what, what is going on here. And so this is a passage that has a lot of history of, of different people trying to work with it and figure out what is it saying about God and what is it not saying about God. And, and I think we need to learn to do that better. I think too often our approach to the Bible is just, well, there's one moral, and let's just learn that more, right? Abraham was obedient, so be obedient. That sells this story way too short, and there's way more that we have to, to deal with and dig into. And yet, as we acknowledge all of those difficulties, um, and we acknowledge, you know, God isn't going to ask these sort of things of us because we know who God is in Christ. There is a, a way that we can metaphorically understand this as faith sometimes means you have to let things die. Sometimes the thing that you thought was what God uh, gave you and this was going to solve all the problems, this was going to make all of those promises come true and everything would be good once I get this. Sometimes it maybe isn't that. And sometimes that may have to be something you let go of. Uh, but it's not about sacrificing another. In Jesus' words, it's about taking up your cross. And so sometimes that does mean there's a, a cost to the life of faith. It's not going to cost us human lives and other people, but we have to give up things that we think we want, we think we need for something greater. And we have to trust that if God is good, then God is going to make things right. We have to trust in the end that God will provide. So thanks, everyone, for joining us this week. I hope this has given you something to chew on and think about. Next week, we'll pick up with the stories that are a little bit easier. We'll get the story of Isaac and Rebecca, a nice love story. 
So I hope you join us that time as we continue these discussions looking at Genesis.